Hello and welcome to The Political Party. Today's guest is Greg Dyke, former Director General of the BBC, but of course, so much more than that. Former Chair of the FA, ran LWT, ITV Sports, has just worked in so many different areas of broadcasting and British life at a leadership level, and as a result has a unique perspective, uh, not just on what's happening with the BBC at the moment, but just on, 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 on leadership and broadcasting and the public's relationship with the BBC and with streaming and all sorts of other things. This is just a phenomenal, um, wide-ranging conversation with someone who's been so influential uh, in our lives. And you think of the TV we watch, um, and also, as a football fan, a, a fair bit about football and Brian Clough and um, a whole load of other things. He's beloved Brentford and Manchester United as well. Uh, before I play you this wonderful interview, um, just uh, to let you know that my next guests at the live shows are as follows. On Monday the 20th of March, my guest is Krishnan Guru Murthy. On Monday the 3rd of April, my guest is Ruth Davidson. Now that will just be a few days after the SNP have chosen their new leader. So a perfect time to be talking to the former leader of the Scottish Conservatives. On the 17th of April, one of the most charismatic politicians in the country, Jess Phillips. Always a phenomenal night with Jess. On Monday the 22nd of May, uh, the definition of a big beast of a political heavyweight, David Blunkett. When you think of what a fascinating life he's led, that would be a very special evening. And on Monday the 5th of June, former Conservative Chancellor Philip Hammond. Obviously, by that point, we will uh, understand more about the budget that came out just a few days ago. And he's a man who gives very few interviews. So I shall stop this preamble. Uh, and leave you in the capable hands of Greg Dyke. Delighted to be joined by the one and only Greg Dyke. Greg, I mean, you must have been watching this last week fortnight unfold um, with a, a mixture of horror, fascination. I mean, uh, what's your what's your overall analysis of what's happened and how it could have been avoided? Um, well, the rules have been changed since I was there, and I think the new rule, except the BBC, and I think the new rule is not workable. And uh, they've tried, this is the first test of it, really, and it's failed miserably. And uh, they're now going to have to review it. Um, I mean, I, I've deliberately, in the in the 20 years since I left the BBC, I've or nearly 20 years, um, I'm deliberately not critical uh, of the leadership of the BBC because I know it's a tough job. Um, but on this occasion, it seemed so absurd. Uh, and the ramifications were quite profound. And the, the one that worried me was it looked like the BBC had folded to pressure from a conservative government. And the real thing about the BBC is it shouldn't be seen to fold to any pressure from either side. Obviously, the BBC has political pressure from left, right and centre, and there are uh, friends, critical friends and enemies of the BBC who will periodically attack it, sometimes because they genuinely think it's made a wrong decision, other times because they have an agenda um, and they want to defund it, abolish it, privatise it, whatever, to, to suit whatever their individual political cause of the day is. Uh, the BBC's come through a period of Brexit and Corbyn, went, where that was really Scottish independence, where it felt like every political party were, was attacking it. But there's a difference between that, I guess, and a sense that there is a almost a crony culture at the top of it. I mean, 
do you think some of those criticisms are fair? That actually, Tim Davies, a guy who stood for election for the Tory party. Well, uh, no, I don't think that's fair. Um, I think the problem at the weekend was uh, was the perception, not necessarily the reality. I don't necessarily think they folded to the pressure from government. I think uh, they'd introduced um, new rules themselves and tried to apply them. And what they discovered is their new rules don't work. When you were Director General, it was, I think I'm right to say, pre-social media. Yeah, really. How would you have dealt with uh, stars like Gary Lineker or any uh, BBC star in, 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 in a similar position to his, i.e. a non-news broadcaster, in an era like this of Twitter and, and Facebook? I, I think I, we'd have put out a statement saying that Gary Lineker is basically a football presenter and he's entitled to his own views. They don't happen to be the views of the BBC. We don't have views on things like that. Now, if Gary Lineker had started using his football programme to promote those views, then we'd have come down pretty hard. But, of course, that wasn't the case, and that's not the case with social media. So it is tougher but i think the bbc is going to realize that uh i mean on so many issues i mean the example i've used because she's a mate of mine is is uh, sarah lancashire say happy valley had been you've been the last week of happy valley and sarah lancashire had said something outrageous politically were they going to pull happy valley i mean the truth is people are going to have opinions and you don't always like them and you don't always want them but that that's the case. Now, in terms of the BBC has managed to keep that strict position on news and current affairs over the years. Uh, when I was there, we we fired the editor of the Today programme for something he wrote, um, um, which was the right decision because he was the editor of the Today programme. And what you couldn't do is when have people coming on the Today programme saying, ah, oh, well, we know what your editor thinks, so most of it. So that, it seems to me that news and current affairs, you've got to keep separate. But no one's going to go on match of the day and start complaining about Gary's views on anything other than football. So do you think it'd be easy for the BBC to, th- to then say, apart from news presenters, anyone involved with the BBC, as long as what they say doesn't breach hate speech legislation or something like that you can actually just say what you like yeah i I think that's where they might end up uh that's not where they are at the moment but they've introduced this sort of vague concept that that of of, you know people that are important to the bbc or important to the perception of the bbc well that 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 could be almost anybody and i think that's the problem they've got but of course what happened over the weekend was they suddenly realized that they were and and I pay credit to uh, to Tim and on he got them out of it on Monday because you know the worst thing would be to double down and make it worse because you know they had a, they you know, basically their sports top staff had told them we're not doing it. Did you we're watch? Uh, did you watch Premier League highlights on Saturday or Sunday night? No, th- luckily I was at a concert somewhere, so I didn't, which was um, I think just as well. Uh, I mean, some people, I mean, I see some Tory MPs enjoyed it, but that's because they don't know anything about football anyway. I mean, it was a surreal um, 
what I mean, the main thing you missed really was the commentators because it made you realise, even as someone who watches football all the time, turns out I don't know who half of these players are. Well, I I know. Well, I was at I went to I'm a I'm a Manchester United and Brentford fan, but I'm basically a Brentford fan. And I was at Brentford last night when we when we played at Southampton. And I didn't have a programme and I couldn't, their screens aren't clear enough for you to see who's playing. And even I, and I go and watch them every other week and I didn't know who half the players were. It was a great result last night for, uh, just on Brentford. I mean, we're, we're talking at a time when the England squad's about to be announced. Do you think Ivan Tony should be included? Well, he's got this problem of gambling, hasn't he, that is going to come up quite soon. And I, I, I can't see uh, him being in the England squad at the moment. Do I think... Other occasions, yes, I think there are players who play in clubs like Brentford. And it's not only Tony who who should get closer to the squad. Uh, But uh, Tony isn't going to be in the squad today. I mean, I'd be amazed. Uh, Morgan Gibbs-White at Nottingham Forest? Yeah, I don't know. Are you a forest supporter? (laughs) Yeah, you see. I am, yeah, of course. Well, there's that kid on the wing. Is it Johnson? Oh, Brennan, yeah, but he's Welsh, sadly. Yeah, we tried to sign him. From Brentford tried to sign him when you were still in the Division One. Well, uh, he wanted to stay at a big club, didn't he? Well, yes. So he'll leave at some time. I mean, obviously, you've you've, you've held various posts in football as well on the boards of Brentford, Manchester United, and obviously on the broadcasting side as well, uh, and at the FA. People talk about football losing its soul and, and it moving away from its working class roots. And I think people have conflicting experiences about this. You know, you go to some modern stadiums and actually it's it's a pleasure to visit. You're not herded around like cattle. Uh, on the other hand, trying to watch Premier League football on telly, if you haven't got Sky, you know, it's so expensive to try and watch it. What is, is, is that a problem, do you think, for the national game and our national identity? And, and is there anything that... Um, effectively the government could do to ensure that some Premier League games are free to air? Um, I, what worries me more is not that about football, is that increasingly um, professional football in this country is increasingly owned by, run by, played by people who are not British. Uh, I have no problem with having some great players come and play in this country, but I mean that's not what's happening. I mean, you go down to to, to even lower divisions now, and they're bringing in foreign players because they're cheaper than British players, and I think that isn't good for you know if you're a kid go, who goes into football. Basically, you start at you know seven, eight now, don't you? At a club, you go right the way through. And there's no incentive for that club really to play you. Um, and I think that's a much bigger problem in English football in English football that that there's no route through. And there's some I saw some amazing figures when I was at the FA, which showed something like 90 odd percent of players at professional clubs at the age of 16 are out of football altogether by the time they're 20. And, you know, it's just too difficult. It's just so easy, so much easier to sign people from other countries. Now, I I was not a Brexiteer in any way at all, except I thought that was the one opportunity that allowed uh, 
governments to say, no, you've now got to you've now got to restrict the number of foreign players you bring into this country. And I think they should do that. Brexit was one of those areas that, uh, again, was uh, very difficult for the BBC. And it found itself in the middle of a debate that it it hadn't itself wanted. And there are still people on the Remain side that talk about impartiality and fake news and claims that weren't effectively rebutted. I mean, there must have been a part of you that, I don't know, whether you thought actually that it would have been a great time to be a director of general of the BBC at a time like that. Maybe it made you want to get back in there. Was there also part of you that thought, thank God I'm not in charge of the organisation at a time like that? Um, it was difficult, I think, for the BBC. And personally, I didn't like the cover, the way they covered it particularly. But then I'm a, I'm not a Brexiteer. Uh, I mean, if the if the vote had gone the other way by one or two percent, the BBC would have got so much flack from the Brexiteers, saying you're the reason we didn't win and all the rest of it. I, I think it's, it's a difficult period for the BBC, and it's partly a difficult period because the government of the day, I mean, we've had some pretty odd people as, as culture secretary and uh, who were quite hostile to the BBC, which wasn't the case when I was there. And, and just looking from afar, I mean, I don't know whether there's a WhatsApp group of former director generals, whether it's like prime ministers who are, uh, periodically ask each other's advice. I mean, has Tim Davey ever been in touch and, and asked for advice? Yeah, well, we, all, we did have a dinner to celebrate the 100th anniversary of all the sort of, all bar one, I think, of the living director generals. Uh, and I think the one thing we all agreed on was that it's quite a tough job. And Tim seemed to think that so far he'd escaped that. Well, that disappeared last week, didn't it? <laughs> it did, yeah. I mean, I, I just wonder about the future of the BBC and without sounding like sort of like policy speak, but how does the BBC make the case for itself going forward after this? Like, Do, do, do you think it has to effectively have a new contract with the public? Because, uh, you know, periodically we go through, each generation seems to have a debate about the BBC and, and not just its funding model, but how relevant it is, how big it is, the things that it should and shouldn't do. Do you have a view on whether the BBC is too big, too small, uh, in effect, in the right position? I think the BBC is being starved of finance, and I think that's quite serious. Um, and that was Nadine Doris's decision with backed by... Uh, Boris Johnson uh, to freeze the licence fees, saying people couldn't afford it. Uh, I noticed they didn't freeze anything else they were involved in. Um, no, I think Nadine Doris was a pretty. I think I don't. I'm not impressed by Nadine Doris in in politics at all. But I thought she was a, a really odd choice to have as culture secretary. Um, well, I, we're coming up to an election where I suspect the current government will lose. You can't be certain, but I suspect they'll lose. And the thing about the history of the BBC is oppositions quite like the BBC because they tried to hold the government to account and governments don't after a while. So you basically get a honeymoon period. So you, if there's a change of government next year, if I suspect the BBC gets an easier period for, for one or two years and then, and then whoever is the... I'm, the winner, I'm, I'm assuming it will be a Labour uh, government or a Labour coalition government. Um, uh, 
their turn will come again to hate the BBC, just as it did under Tony Blair with Alistair Campbell. Have you spoken to Alistair Campbell at all since those days? Uh, I see him occasionally, and he still shouts out, we were right, and I still shout, and I shout back, well, yes, Alistair, but you're the only person who, you and Tony, the only two who believe you didn't sex up, sex up the case for war now. There's only you left. Um, oddly, I saw he put out a tweet over the weekend saying, I don't believe this, but I, I agree with Greg Dyke. On on Gary Lineker, which was um, which was, I, I mean, we we would always, I agree, I suspect, agree on a range of things. I mean, again, his that job, if you're in government, is a tough job because y- you're not a politician, but you are trying to control the media. But a tough job for you as well, though, because obviously you had a history of supporting the Labour Party. But anyway, you're Director General of the BBC at a time when Britain is going to war. Uh, you've run reports about, as you say, the dossier, and then yourself, Gavin Davies, Tony Blair and, and Alistair Campbell really get drawn into what becomes an almost personal battle between the four of you. And, you know, the, the annexes of the Hutton report make for fascinating reading, the letters that are being fired back and forth between the BBC and Downing Street. Personally, how difficult was that period for you? Um. Well... I always thought, until Dr. Kelly killed himself, I always thought it was one of those stories that would be a big fuss and big man would in the end go away. And then Dr. Kelly killed himself and they appointed, as they called him, the right judge, uh, who then came out with a report that the the public didn't believe. I mean, it's quite interesting. Uh, I remember talking to some Labour people at that time and said, well, what do we do? We The report finds totally for us and no one believes it. Well, they didn't believe it because it didn't ma- match the evidence he'd heard. Um, I, I'm an optimist in life, so I always thought everything was going to be fine. So I was quite amazed to find myself out of my ear one day in time. Um, you can never be sure of the governors of the BBC uh, you know, people have said over the years, you look, you know, the, the independence and the real, the real uh, scrutiny of the BBC comes from within the BBC, not from the governors. And, and that that moment when you leave, uh, you may still remember the news reports of the BBC staff and journalists gathering in reception. You sort of you leave to this hero's departure that very few director generals, if any, have ever had. I mean, in a way. Did it? Was there a sense in that moment that it was bittersweet that you wanted to keep doing the job? But actually, far better to leave in that way. You'd, you'd have had to have left one day, but great to leave as a hero. Well, we made. I mean, the reaction of the staff that day. What you know, it was the only nice thing that happened on what was otherwise a pretty horrible day. Um, I think uh, when I look back. It was. It wasn't about the issue that I was leaving over. It was about that we made. I mean, I followed John Burt, who was not loved by the staff, and we. I. I had a different philosophy to him. I think a lot of things John did were right, but he should have tried to get people on side. And my view of of running organisations is you. You've got to get your staff on your side, and if you haven't, you're never going to succeed. So. I'd spent, you know, four years trying to get people to support, to explain what we were doing, why we were doing it, and get them on side. 
and I think they were onside. And I think what they were what they were disappointed about when I left was that they thought it would just go back to being the old top down organisation it had always been. And and for you at that point, when you're someone who's it feels like has always had big jobs in in broadcasting, football, and media. At that point, do you think, oh, my God, am I ever going to work again? Or do you think, you know what, I'll be fine, something will come along? Um, well, of course, I never did work again as a chief executive, really. Um, and I think that was as a direct result. If you upset the government of the day to that extent, it's quite hard. Um, I did, uh, but I was in my late 50s by then, so... It was time to do other things, and I've done a range of other things since then. Some I liked, some I didn't. Um, I mean, when I look back on my favourite jobs in my life, my the best one was to running London Weekend Television, which I loved. Um, the BBC was was a good job, and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it more than I thought I would, actually. But um, I wouldn't say that the chairing the FA was one of the most exciting, one of the most enjoyable moments in my life. A lot was made at the time when you, when you left of, of um, I think maybe it was Gavin Jones that knew Alistair Campbell better than you did, but this idea that actually these people know each other. This isn't just government and the BBC. There is a, at least some sort of informal um, channel here that, that these people are actually quite fond of each other and, and the pressure that it was putting effectively on friendships or, or, or almost friendships. I mean, was there a sense of sadness about that? Um. Well, I took when I took over the BBC as, as director general. I thought uh, my job was to keep away from the politicians of the day, really, and I didn't think it was my job to constantly be with them and talk to them and try and. And by and large, that worked for three years, and then in the fourth year, of course, came the Iraq War, uh, and I think Alistair never forgave me for writing. Tony Blair basically wrote to me and said he thought we were not. At, we were not being impartial. And I wrote, basically wrote back and said, look, I'm sorry, you're not the judge of impartiality. You've got millions out on the streets and half your party in, in rebellion. You've got to leave that to us and not leave it to Alistair. And I think that's what upset Alistair greatly. And, and do you have some sympathy for them? Because Andrew Gilligan, you know, you think about the phrase sexed up. I mean, it's still, you know, you go back over it. Did David Kelly ever actually say it? Andrew Gilligan then goes to work for Boris Johnson. You know, people close to Tony Blair and Alistair Campbell might say, well, this is proof. You know, this guy was basically a Tory and he saw an opportunity to have a go at uh, a Labour government. And the BBC stood the story up and actually there should have been a bit more rigour there. And, and all the problems come from that effectively initial misjudgment. Yeah, there was a misjudgment in his wording. We never denied that. But by and large... If you go through our evidence to uh, the Hutton inquiry, it's very clear that they that that Alistair Campbell sexed up the document. It's very clear. They changed the title. They changed parts of it. And the rest of they even you know it, it, I, when I look back now, I, you know, and I've forgotten it, it's gone. But I in my life, but I do think there was no doubt they did what you employ PR people to do. You employ PR people to to give you the best spin, and they gave them the best spin. But whether you should use that on uh, documents coming from the Secret Service is a different matter, I think. 
when you first got the job, obviously there were people in the Tory party saying, oh, this guy, he's donated money to the Labour Party, you've got Labour government. I mean, in a way, there's sort of echoes of the things that Tim Davies has been through. Um, but give you a bit of sympathy for Tim Davies' position. Um, well, of course, Gavin and I, who have both given money to the Labour Party and had supported the Labour Party earlier in our lives, um, we ended up with an enormous bust-up with a Labour government. Uh, Tim, so far, hasn't had an enormous bust-up with the Tories. He's had an enormous bust-up with the public this weekend. Um, I, I, I have a lot of sympathy for Tim's position. I have a lot of sympathy for money. That's a very difficult job. And I think he's had attacks and criticism of the BBC uh, in the last five years from the right of the Tory party, which I don't think people have seen of that level before. Uh, hopefully um, that that will go away. I mean, last week, I thought the prime minister should have taken his home secretary aside and said, tone down your language. No problem about the policy. He ain't got a problem about the policy, whether others have. No problem about the policy, but tone down your language. And I think there's a thing about the right of the Conservative Party whose language is pretty unattractive in this. And that's, of course, what Gary was talking about. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And how hard, how hard is it to be? I mean, obviously, journalists go through this all the time, and, and people expect that journalists will have opinions of their own, and they're perfectly capable of being impartial. But when you are the director general of a of the BBC specifically, and you have your own political allegiances, and they are known, how hard is it to direct an organisation that big and that important, and effectively keep your own politics out of it? I didn't find that difficult, actually. I didn't find that difficult at all. Um, your job is to try to understand the issues and be impartial about them, but to explain them. Now, sometimes in explaining them, you might become be seen to be quite hostile. Uh, but I think they're only trying to explain. Uh, I, I mean, remember, under go governments inevitably use spin to try to get their view across. And it's the job of the BBC and other broadcasters and other journalists to question that and to say, no, hang on, this isn't right. We don't agree with that. That doesn't make you opposed to them or anti them or pro them. You're just trying to do a job. Obviously, you had some time at the FA and, and the England job used to be called an impossible job. But I, I wonder if Director General of the BBC is similarly impossible. You're in charge of something that 
in a new sense, is unique globally, but also is a sprawling regional presence uh, and uh, really, uh, in a way, the number one nurturer of, of broadcasting talent in the UK. You must have so many competing priorities at any one point. I mean, it, it must be the closest thing to being prime minister. Well, I would say it, you go in on a Monday and you think, oh, it looks quite a nice week. Uh, and by Wednesday, something's happened that you've never heard of in Wales or something. And the whole thing's gone kaput. It's only how you deal with those things, isn't it? And um, if I look back on on Dr. Kelly, we could have dealt with it better. Um, although I'm not sure it would have made much difference. I mean, I think from the moment Dr. Kelly killed him, I mean, if you, if you ever go back and look at those pictures of Tony Blair getting off the plane when he's when he's learnt that. Dr. Kelly's been found dead and he looks ashen faced and he knew the problems he was in because he, I mean, the one part of this, the whole story that we now know absolutely clearly that where Tony Blair didn't tell the truth, because most of the time I don't, we didn't accuse him of lying. And I don't think he was, but was on when he said he had no played, no part in releasing Dr. Kelly's name, which was not true. And we now know it's not true. And I think that's what he was so worried about. He'd put Dr. He and Alistair Campbell had hung Dr. Kelly uh, out there. And the result was he was dead. When you think about your time as Director General, aside from Iraq, you know, when you first take over the job, at that point, what were the priorities for the BBC? I mean, this is pre-iPlayer at that point, pre-HDTV. Well, we developed the AI player when I was there. Um, we developed Freeview. Uh, uh, we, I, I thought my job was to stop Rupert Murdoch controlling the broadcast media in the same way as he controlled the print media in this country. And I think that's why I was appointed. And I think we did that. And did you, did you ever meet Rupert Murdoch? Yeah. And what was he like? Not charming. But did he ever talk to you about, you know, News Corp versus BBC type stuff? No, but we talked about all sorts of issues. I, I've got to tell you, I think he was um, a genius in many ways. I think he was the outstanding uh, owner of a journalistic organisation of his time. Um, it is quite interesting reading these reports from the States at the moment and, and Fox News where he basically says it's not about, you know, he's quoted as saying it's not about uh, red and blue, you know, Democrat or Republican. It's, uh, or Republican or Democrat, if you're going to get red or blue. Uh, it's not about that. It's about green. I, we, you, you report the news, which is financially best for your organisation. Now, that is a very sinister view of the world. And I'm quite surprised he said something as publicly as that. I mean, there, there are various elements to Murdoch's success. Obviously, one of them is that opinion-driven news uh, and the effect that it's had on the public realm. Just thinking specifically about how he presents sport. I mean, as, as expensive as it is, Sky Sports, as a thing to watch, is it, just a phenomenal visual product. I, I mean, are, were there times when you at the BBC where you thought we need to learn from Sky or, or uh, did those thoughts not come into your mind at all? Well, because I go back earlier, and I was, I was part of the the of the group that actually created the Premier League, 
Um, uh, so I've been involved with with Sky in that time and, and fought them uh, over the first contract. I think they've done a great job, Sky, on, on sport. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next decade. You know, now the very rich streamers are beginning to get into it. You know, it's a very, it's a very, it seems to me a very difficult decision for the Premier League next time around. What do you do if one of the streamers comes in and offers you twice the money? Do you abandon Sky Sport? Don't know. It's sort of happened, and I know it's in a very different um, position in, in terms of the marketplace, <clears throat> but that sort of top-ranked boxing has already gone to DAZN and Sky now f- effectively concentrating on less big-name fighters. Yeah. Hard not, you know, it, it's not impossible that DAZN or Amazon Prime or someone else would take the Premier League. Well, when I was, when I, going back many years, when I was chairman of ITV Sport, I happened to be chairman at the time when we had... Um, most of those big fights, Nigel yeah. Ben, uh, Eubank, yeah, uh, and those amazing fights which we used to play at 10 o'clock on a Sunday night, Jim uh, Rosenthal, we, yeah, amazing Jim Rosenthal, and they got massive ratings. Um, and you'd have said, but the, how did ITV get those? These historically would have been on the BBC, and ITV threw some money at it. Um, and and they were brilliant now. They don't happen on free-to-air television now. When you think about the dream of the Premier League, uh, I mean, I was uh, about 10 years old when it started, and, and I, I remember the fanfare down at Forest. Obviously, Forest-Liverpool was the first uh, live game on, on Sky Sports, the last, first live Premier League game on Sky Sports. And I just remember there being like dancers on the pitch and Bart Simpson and fireworks and things. And all that element slowly got phased out. And then the real dream of the Premier League, I guess, importing the best international talent into the country and creating a, a genuine Premier League. Would you have ever dreamed in 1992, when you're so crucial to its inception, that it would have ended up where it is today in 2023? No, but as I said earlier, we also would never have ended up that most of the British football clubs will be owned by foreigners. Most of the... Uh, I mean, the only consistent factor in all in English football now are the fans. I'm a great believer in in regulation. I'm a great believer that you've got to have, you can't just leave it to the people who own football clubs to decide on the future of football. So what was the, effectively, what was the intention of the creation of the Premier League? It was basically the five big clubs who were fed up with being told what to do by the chairman of Blackburn Rovers or the chairman of Bolton or the rest. That was basically what it was. That they did, and and they wanted more of the money. Remember, you haven't got to go back that far to remember when money for football rights was divided by 92 clubs. It's not that long ago. And they wanted more. Now, they... But no one, as, you, as you're right, no one would have foreseen, no one would have foreseen the overseas sales. You know, overseas was a bunch on the side in the old days. Yeah. Now, I mean, you know, there's more money coming from overseas than there is from Britain. You know, it's massive. And it is the international league. It's watched everywhere. I go to Uganda quite a lot. I got off a parking, I got off a speeding ticket in Uganda because the, the policeman 
found out I used to be on the board of Manchester United and he was he was a Manchester United fan, so he let me go. Well, there you go, the power of the Premier League. But yeah. I just wonder, you know, those initial conversations where you're sat, it must have been such an exciting time to be creating this new model in, in, in English football. Was there ever a discussion about where you actually wanted it to go? Did you think, well, even about what the unintended consequences might be? And, you know, in truth, there were different facts. I mean, around that table that set it up were the chairman or the chief executives was five clubs and me from ITV. And we wanted it because we wanted to keep the football on ITV, which we failed to do. Uh, the clubs wanted it because they just had enough. David Dean had been kicked off the board of the Football League, as had uh, Mr Carter from Everton, and they were both fed up with that. Uh, they had tried it once before and it hadn't worked. The real issue, actually, oddly, was if the FA had said no, it would never have happened. They decided, the, the, those five clubs went to the FA and said, we want to start our own league do you support us? And the FA said, yes. But if the FA said, yes, but we want 20% of the income for, for lower-grade football in this country, including, but particularly, grassroots football, if we if they'd said, we want control of this league, we want a majority on the board, they'd have got it all. And they asked for nothing. Was that just naivety on their part? Yes, stupidity. I mean, you know... As a Forest fan, you know, our relationship with the FA stretches back to them not giving Cloughy the job. And, you know, I wonder if every generation thinks that the uh, FA has no idea what it's doing. In in the furore that was going on this week, somebody sent me an interview of John Motson oh, and, and Clough. That interview is brutal. And, and it is. And I sat and watched it. And you, I mean... The, I mean, I, I met Clough a few times. Uh, I went up and tried to persuade him to come back as an ITV uh, presenter and pundit. And, uh, I mean, it's interesting. I was talking about this last night at this game. We were saying Nottingham Forest winning the European Cup twice is the, mo is the most remarkable thing to happen in football in the last 50 years. And that was about Clough. No, I totally agree. I mean, so did you try and convince him to be... Because obviously he was on telly all the time. And this was, no, he... he explained to younger this people. Was, you remember, this was, this was in his later days. Okay, so after he'd finished management? No, he was still manager of Knott's Forest, but it was his last... He was, I always remember taking him to lunch, and we went to lunch in this restaurant, and... He saw a kid over the other side who was one of his, and he shouts to this kid, here, lad, come here. And this poor kid who had broken his leg came across from one side of the restaurant to another on crutches, and he got to our table and Clough said to him, now give us a kiss. And he made this kid give him a kiss, and he said, oh, now you can F off. <laughs> and he limped all the way back across the other side. And you thought, it's, a, it's an interesting style of management. I'm not sure the rest of us would get away with that. No, no, he was just a megastar. But was it because he did a lot of telly, you know, adverts and all sorts of things? Why was he? He was the best ever. Him and Greaves are the best ever pundits, right? Largely because they didn't care what they said. 
so many pundits, you know, are scared of upsetting their old friends, their old mates, all the rest, you know, because they come out of football. Clough didn't care who he upset. So how come he, how come he didn't take your offer then? His wife wouldn't let him. I mean, uh, fair enough. I mean, was this in a period where perhaps he wasn't uh, yeah, in, yeah. in best Yeah, yeah. It was health? a period when he was probably drinking too much and the rest of it. But he was... Uh, he was a one-off. You never get another one like him. No, that's true. You said earlier that LWT was actually your favourite gig. It was, yes. So, I mean, obviously, all these amazing jobs you've had, was that just because it was sort of the start of your career and, and therefore it was more exciting? Or was there something specific about LWT? Yeah, I got a job. I was with some people from LWT actually yesterday and we were all just talking about And for most of them, it was the best period of their life. It was, uh, I I mean, I started there as a researcher and I became the chief executive. I went away a couple of times, but I mean, that's, you know, I did TVAM and all those other things. But uh, but London Weekend was a wonderful place. It was, and in, in one building, you got everything um, on a small scale, really. So you had sport, you had ITV sport, you had current affairs, you had features, you had drama, you had entertainment. So you had Scylla Black wandering around the place at the same time and Michael Barrymore and all those sorts of big stars. And, and, and you all bumped into each other, you know, and just everybody knew each other, really. Melvin, you know, Melvin, who is still a good mate of mine, Melvin was there. Uh, Brian Warden was there uh, doing doing the uh, Weekend World and then the Warden show. Uh, I mean, it was just an interesting just an interesting time. And I suppose it's about where you are at a certain age in your life, isn't it? Well, yes, of course. I mean, I, I just wonder now, the, the TV landscape in the UK is very, very different. And, and regional broadcasters don't exist in the same way. I mean, even regional news is, is not as big as it was. Do you think there is a societal a, and even a, a political implication of that? Can you trace things like Brexit back to yeah, I, the collapse I, of those I, I think one of the challenges for the BBC... I mean, the regional press always hated the region, regional BBC because they, because they thought they they took away their audience really. But the regional press has almost collapsed. I mean, there's nobody, you know, it's almost gone. The, or it's a classic case of their advertising base all went online. Uh, I mean, there's some still doing okay, but the regional press is virtually gone, and that does mean that there's a democratic deficit in this country outside of, of national politics. And I think one of the jobs of the BBC should be to fulfil that. And I think you do that by, by in the world we now live, you can split the transmitters much more easily. And, I mean, when I was Director General of the BBC, we started one new regional system out of Hull, uh, which I did because I've been at university at York and the rest of it. You just knew what's covered. And we started one regional system out of Hull, which was incredibly successful, breaking it away so they no longer got the news from Leeds. You know, Now, it seems to me that's what you should do, go around Britain and look at how do you break these up. That costs you a bit of money, and I think, but I think it's well worth it. And I think um, it should be one of the discussions with – you won't get it with this government, but with the next government. And I guess some people say, is it the BBC's job to do that? Some people might say, well, you, you save the BBC a load of money, pull them out of the regions in effect, and let you know the private sector provide these sorts of services. The private sector won't do it. 
They're not viable. It's not financially viable. That's why the BBC should do it. I mean, you know, uh, um, you know, you look at the sales of some of the what used to be monster regional papers. And they've disappeared. Uh, it's it's changed. Kids don't buy them. There's, it's just a different world. Where my generation go, as we are, um, they go. I think. And what is what should the role of the BBC be in in twenty twenty three and in the next ten years? Uh, do you have a view of how it should position itself and the things that it, it should and shouldn't be doing? Well, I, yes, but I wouldn't. I think we're in the middle of something, and we need to see how we don't know how the streamers end up. At the moment, some of them are making some brilliant drama, um, which is you know. Uh, but I, we don't know whether they'll ever make any money and the rest of it. And we need to see. And so I would give it five years before I'd commit really on what the BBC should be doing. I do think the BBC should stay involved in entertainment and drama, uh, but disproportionately its function is news and 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 I think it should. I think it should do national news, international news, but it should also do local news. When you reflect on your own career, I mean, you're not a privileged guy from a lower middle class background. You end up having this phenomenal career. What is it that you possess, you think, that that, that led you to, to end up playing leading roles in so many different areas of British life? I, I got a message last week or two weeks ago that my maths teacher had died. And I wrote to him and said... I wrote to his kids and said, you know, what a great bloke he was, what, who the rest of it... And I told stories because um, I mean I was useless at school. I failed almost everything, um, but this bloke got me through A level maths. Um, so I thought I'd just thank them for it was the only A level I ever got was A level pure and applied maths combined, and uh, it was thanks to him. A grade E mine, and you know when I went to university years later, you know six years later, I went because I've been a journalist, and they took me because I've been a journalist. Nothing to do with. Uh, academia. I had to learn, actually. I mean, when I went to university, I had to unlearn being a journalist and learn academia. And then, you know, I always remember my first essay at university was about the Industrial Revolution. I read one book, thought, that's it, that would do, bang it in. And they pointed out that maybe it's a bit more difficult than that. (laughs) But that's the journalistic perspective of it. Um, Why... uh, well, I'm, I've always been incredibly ambitious and I've also been optimistic, um, uh, which makes you a risk taker. So I've always prepared to take risks. And I'm always surprised if one goes wrong, really. Uh, so I was, I never thought I, I thought I was, whatever happened to Hutton, I thought I was fine at the BBC until that day when I wasn't. Um, and I still do that in my life and I still do different things. So I'm involved in things and, and I'm always, in, when I'm the chair, I'm always pushing the chief executive to take more risks. Of any. But um, I always remember I had a finance director once and we opened his drawer and then was a list and it said things that could go wrong. And basically it was aimed at me saying that I didn't have a list. Um no, you you develop a, a philosophy over the time, you know, of what about, and it's about how you deal with people, really. 
But where does the ambition come from? I was a third son, and I don't think my parents thought I was going to be successful, so I decided I would be. And what did your brothers end up doing? They're both still alive. One comes with me to football. He's 82. He comes with me to football. Um, I think they are surprised. I mean, I had a dinner once at the BBC where I invited some of my teachers along to dinner at the BBC, and I did it just to say to them, yeah, hey, look. And one of them said to me, do you know the way here, Dyke? We discussed you, because I still call you Dyke, don't they, you teacher? You know, we discussed you, and... We all decided that you were the least likely pupil to succeed at anything. <laughs> well, there go. I suppose it was that to people, I guess. Well, succeeding is about good ideas and delivering them. Seems to me, you know, and you've got to try a few, and some won't work, and some will work, and something. If, and if you get a disproportionate number that don't work, you're out. You know, you've had it. But 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 it's about what what is the ambition of the organisation, who have you got on side? I, I, I mean, I, I look back and think I've been incredible. Well, luck plays a part. I mean, I had my former chief executive at London Weekend, who, who I worked to, said, look, Greg, I'll, I'll invest in anything you do, not because I think you're that good, but you're the luckiest person I've ever met. <laughs> luck plays a big part. But uh, it isn't luck just a word that modest people use to explain their own success? Um, no, I think luck is about you. You've got to be prepared to take risks. You've got to be prepared to take risks, um, and if they come off, you you do pretty well. I mean, when I was at London Weekend, it was the, it was Margaret Thatcher who decided to auction all our all the franchises. You know, it's a long time ago now. Uh, but the one thing that was very clear to me when I was the chief executive was that if we went in with the sort of staff scale of staff we had then, we would lose in the auction. Therefore, I literally got rid of a third of the staff, but but I got rid of them generously. And we were lucky. We had the money and we gave it to them. Someone had advised me, look, just be generous. It doesn't matter. And that was right. Just be generous. If you People knew that i mean i always remember one one of the trade union leaders saying to me he went off to be a teacher he said i've always wanted to be a teacher and he went off to be a teacher but he said thanks for the money he said but you can't blame us for taking it you lot gave it to us and i think that was i think itv was pretty badly managed for a long time and finally, just you mentioned earlier that the likely outcome of the next general election is, is potentially a Labour government or some form of Labour-led government. If Keir Starmer's the next Prime Minister and things change at the top of the BBC and he picks up the phone or someone picks up the phone and says, Greg, we'd love you to come back and be chair of the BBC board, would you do it? I think I'd be quite old by then. I'm quite old already. Uh, you know, you get old by... By chance, really, don't you? Suddenly, you wake up one day and you discover you discover your knee hurts or your back hurts, and that, that's what aging is about. Um, who knows? Who knows? You don't know what you'd be. Um, I mean, who knows? You know, I'm I'm really I was persona non grata with the Labour Party for a long while because of uh, the bust up over Dr. Kelly. Um, I'm not sure my 
And I'm not really act politically active. I'm politically interested, but I'm not politically active of any parties, no. Um, but not a no, not a no to being a future BBC chair. Well, you never say no to anything because you think, you always think, I mean, I, I when I hear lots of old people say, oh, television was great when I was young, it's not now, I always say that's complete bullshit. I suspect for a kid going into television today, this is a great time. This is a great time. And, uh, you know, th there's a real danger of, I mean, I was I was pretty young to become a chief executive of an ITV company. And I used to sit around and listen to all these guys saying, you oh, know, it was better when I was young. And I thought, this is just not right. It's just not true. So I think there's a moment when you hand over to other people. Secondly, would I be seen as a, a political appointment, question mark? Because one of the things I think you've got to do with the BBC is you've got to take uh, I mean, the current chairman of the BBC is getting a lot of flack, who I feel I know and quite like and quite respect. Um, but his problem is that he got appointed by Boris Johnson. And actually, it would be far better if the chairman of the BBC was not appointed by the Prime Minister of the day. And final, final question. And I realise this is the this is the Greg Dyke equivalent of the Tebbit test. But when Brentford play Manchester United, who do you want to win? You know, I had to be at a wedding this year on the day Brentford played Manchester United and Brentford won 4-0. And there was a bit of me, 1-0 would have been fine. 4-0, oh, that's that's tough. That's tough. Um, I mean, the great thing about supporting both clubs is that, of course, for most of my life, there was never a conflict. And then Brentford got into the Premier League. But I suppose, you know, I'm I go to Brentford every I don't go to United anymore. I go to Brentford every other week for the, all the home games. Uh and I think I think they're remarkable. I think what has been achieved there by I mean, when I was chairman of Brentford, we used to have a whip I remember having a whip round at the board meeting to pay the wages. You know, what well, look at it now. <laughs> And 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 it got we we sold a lot of the shares to Matt Benerman, who's done a, who is the owner now, and he's done a brilliant job, a brilliant job. He has, Greg. I could talk to you for days, but th that would be abusing uh, your generosity. Thank you so much for this. All right, thank, thank you. you. I enjoyed it. Well, there you go, Greg Dyke. I could have spoken to Greg for days on end, just about each one of his jobs, let alone all of them at the same time. In a way, th there was too much to talk about. Um, and who knows what Greg Dyke will do next? And who knows, maybe a future chair of the BBC. Um, what an absolute pleasure that was. Um, don't forget uh, the live shows. The next one is on Monday, the 20th of March with Channel 4's Krishnan Guru Murthy. Uh, and then Ruth Davidson, Jess Phillips, David Blunkett, Philip Hammond, and loads more to be announced. You can click on the link in the blurb to buy tickets to those shows. Please leave a five-star written review. Share this far and wide amongst your friendship groups, WhatsApp groups, and on social media. And I'll see you soon. Ta-ra. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.